Well, this morning we have reached the end of our series on the Holy Spirit. Next week we'll begin our Christmas series in the, the lead into Christmas. And those of you that were present about a month ago might remember us talking about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. And we know that sin grieves the Holy Spirit and hinders his work in your life. And you might remember that we compared sin to a bad tenant, the kind of tenant that comes into your investment property and does all sorts of damage. And you might remember some of these horrific images of the damage that rental tenants have done um, to properties. You and I and all believers are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And when we rent out part of his dwelling place to sin and we allow that poor tenant to run amok in our lives doing all sorts of damage, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And today I want to take that analogy a little bit further and I want you to imagine that you have guests coming for dinner. Now most of us when we have guests coming to dinner want the place to look as best as we can get it to look. You don't want them to sort of come in and see your kitchen looking a little cluttered like this or perhaps some of your living areas or bedrooms looking like teenage bedrooms. Normally we clean up, don't we, before we receive guests and some of us have to do a little more cleaning up than others. We wash the dishes, we pack up and we put away We run the vacuum over the floors, perhaps we mop and put the laundry away. And if your visitor is likely to be my mother, you would pay extra attention to the bathroom because she will make comment on the state of your bathroom. And if your visitor is Pastor Bruce, you will pay extra attention to the top of the fridge and the top of the picture frames because take it from me, he checks. (laughs) Now, imagine that the guest that you had coming over was somewhat of a very important or special guest, perhaps none other than the Queen herself. Imagine the sort of overdrive cleaning and preparation frenzy that you would go into if you had that kind of guest coming for dinner. No one would want to be responsible for Her Majesty arriving looking like this and then after a brief visit to your bathroom coming out (laughs) looking like this. We have the holy God dwelling in us. It's not your mother or your mother-in-law. It's not the pastor coming over. It's not even the queen. We have no ordinary tenant living within us. He's not just dropping in for a short stay. He's taking up residence. And so the question I want to ask today is, Is the place in which you expect him to dwell suitable for such a holy tenant? Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Our bodies are dwelling places for the holy God, And so we have ourselves somewhat of a dilemma. 
Because at some point, all of us will do something that we regret, perhaps some things that we regret, and all of us at some point will make a bit of a mess of our lives. We all sin because we are all fallen human beings and life is going to get messy. And yet we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. So how do we handle this great paradox of the sinless and perfect dwelling with sinful man? And that's the issue that we're going to be dealing with today. And you might say, well, it's quite simple, really. If your house is messy and you are expecting an important guest, get busy and get it clean. Or if you realise that you have an issue with some kind of sin, get busy and clean up, lest you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Doesn't matter how you clean up. Well, in my experience, it matters very much. When Bruce and I were inspecting the current house that we now live in, it was quite evident that the couple that lived there had four teenage children, and they each had four teenage children bedrooms, which smelt like four teenage children had been living in those bedrooms. And it was obvious that their parents had told them that they needed to tidy up a little bit because there was a property inspection booked in. And it was also evident that they had done just enough to appease the parents, but not quite enough to make the property suitable for um, inspection. And so when we walked into the rooms, you were hit by this awful smell of body odour and clothing that really needed washing. And we walked into one of the bedrooms and there was wardrobes along one wall. And I thought, well, I want to see how much wardrobe space there is in this house. So I opened the wardrobe door and was just about buried in the avalanche of everything that fell out of the wardrobe door. There was clothing, clean and dirty. There was books, homework, food, shoes and every other kind of item that all just toppled out onto the floor. And so I madly started picking things up and trying to ram them back into the door and shut the cupboard door and the door would open and all fall out again. The real estate agent said, just leave it. We see it all the time. Just leave it on the floor. Little kids, I've discovered, particularly little girls, also have a funny idea of what cleaning up means. At times I can look at the state of their room, our youngest two, and order a clean-up. And I can estimate that I might have an hour or an hour and a half free time to do what I like while they clean up their rooms. And then five minutes later, they parade out announcing that their rooms are now perfectly clean. <laughs> and the first one or two times they did this, I went in amazed at the amazing clean-up job that they'd done. And then I looked under the bed everything that had been on the floor was just shoved underneath the bed. And so there was an air of tidiness about the place, but it wasn't tidy. And once they realised that under the bed was no longer a viable option and that they were facing a good hour of tidying up, they began to look for any kind of excuse to get them out of doing the required amount of work. And the easiest excuse was simply to shift the blame to someone else. 
And so it was always the other sister who had made the mess. And so cleaning up then consisted of picking up the mess and moving it to the other sister's bedroom floor. And sometimes they'll debate for ages, for even longer than it would take to clean the room, about who the mess actually belongs to. And in many ways, as adults, we're just bigger versions of little children, aren't we? And we make all sorts of excuses to avoid dealing with our problems. Our problems are not the problem. God can handle our problems, but our problem is so often our inability to recognise that we even have a problem or our failure to own the problem if we indeed do recognise it. We'll move on because you're probably getting dizzy from that slide. going. <laughs> our passage today speaks about the right way of dealing with sin and it is a beautiful passage of heartfelt repentance. I've got up here just three verses from the middle of that psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Even just a cursory reading of these three verses from this psalm indicates that this is a passage which is heavy on emotion. And to appreciate that emotion, you need to have the backstory to this psalm. And so for the purists here who like the message to consist of a reading of the passage and then an exposition of that passage, apologies today because you're not going to get that. I've thought through how I can best do justice to this passage and I think I can do it best by just giving you an extended background and then just letting the passage speak for itself because I think it does speak for itself. Now to get a feel for where David, the writer of um, this psalm, is coming from, we have to take a bit of a journey back through the history of Israel and through the history of some of the leaders of Israel at the time. And we have much to learn from the way that they dealt with sin in their lives. Sometimes the Bible gives us people whose example is something we should emulate and sometimes there are people there whose example is something that we should learn from and try to avoid. And Zig Ziglar is a, a well-known speaker, motivational speaker, and um, I enjoy this quote from him. He says, some of, us, some of us learn from other people's mistakes and the rest of us have to be the other people. So we're going to begin today with the last of the judges who is mentioned in the book of Judges. He's not the very last judge, but he's the last one you'll find in the book of Judges. And most of you will have heard of him, Samson, the strong man. We know him for his strength, we know him for his long hair and we know him because of a certain weakness that he had with women. Samson judged Israel for 20 years in the days when the enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines, 
um, tormented them. And we remember him for all of these great strengths that he had. It was Samson who struck down a thousand men using just the jawbone of a donkey, a thousand Philistines killed. And he did this empowered by the Spirit of God. We read there, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and the bindings that they had him in just fell from his arms like they were burnt chaff. And then he picked up this jawbone of the donkey and was able to strike down these thousand Philistines. But Samson was weak where it concerned women. And against the wishes of his parents, he uh, married a Philistine. And then when she was taken from him, he fell in love with Delilah. Now, Delilah was a woman from the, the Sorek Valley. And this is sort of border territory. It runs here between all of this, which was Philistine territory, and the tribe of Dan, the Israelite tribe of Dan. So we don't know for sure whether Delilah was herself a Philistine, but she was certainly very sympathetic to them, and she acted on their behalf in the downfall of, of Samson. This mighty strong man of God allowed himself quite literally to be in bed with the enemy. He had allowed something else to come in and take up residence in his heart and while he lay sleeping in Delilah's lap, the Lord departed from him. And Judges 16.20 is among the saddest verses in the whole of the Bible. Delilah had allowed the Philistines to come in and to cut off his seven braids and his strength was gone. And she wakes him up saying, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And he thinks, yeah, 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 you know, this has happened before. I'll fight them off and break the change that they've bound me in. But he didn't realise the Lord had left him. Sin had moved in. Sin had made itself comfortable in Samson's life. Sin had taken over and so spiritually as well as physically, Samson was found sleeping. And it happened so easily. With the exception of just the loss of his hair, Samson looked like much the same man. But he was not. When I go out visiting some of our older folk, I'm astounded at how clean and tidy some of their houses are. There's not a single thing out of place in some of their homes. In fact, I'm worried about sitting on the couch in case I crease the cushions or something. And I thought my home was relatively clean until I visited some of these homes, but when I return from some of these homes, I feel like I'm living in filth. Mess kind of comes as par for the course when you have five children. With child number one, you're fastidiously cleaning up, wiping up, picking up, if something drops on the floor, it's straight into the bin, lest any germs should, you know, infect child number one. By child number five, it's kind of been reduced to survival of the fittest. <laughs> and provided we can see the kitchen bench and the dishes aren't above the level of the sink, 
and we aren't tripping over toys, it's a pretty good day in the Donald house. And that's kind of how it is with sin. Little by little, the bar gets lowered until you realise that you're living in filth and you're completely oblivious to the fact that spiritually you are asleep in the lap of the devil. For all intents and purposes, you might look like exactly the same person and be doing exactly the same things. You might still be coming to church every Sunday, attending your care group weekly. You might be mixing with your Christian friends from the church and they might not know it, but you know that something is wrong. The bar has been lowered and instead of being alive in Christ, you are spiritually drowsy and heading towards being fast asleep. So learn from Samson, lesson number one. Don't let sin dull your spiritual senses. Stay awake to it. Be on guard for it. Don't let the devil take a foothold and allow that bar to drop. Samson brought great scandal upon the leadership of Israel and he paid dearly for his sin. The Philistines seized him, they poked his eyes out and they set him in chains, grinding in their mills. We don't hear of repentance from Samson, just of the desire for revenge. After Samson, the priest Eli served as judge over Israel for 40 years until the Lord condemned Eli's family for the sins of his son and his tolerance of their sin. And then Samuel served, served as judge and also prophet and priest over Israel for the next 12 years until the people demanded a king. And the king that they got was King Saul. And like Samson, the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. It says there, the spirit of God rushed upon him as they came to Gibeah and he began to prophesy among them. Like Samson, Saul ruled Israel in the years of the Philistines. And like Samson, he brought scandal upon the leadership of Israel. His headlines might have looked something like this. Israel makes, Israel's king makes a mockery of the priesthood, plunders the spoils of war and dabbles in the occult. Unlike Samson... Saul had the prophet and priest Samuel to show him the error of his ways and he had plenty of opportunities to reflect and repent. And there are two incidents in the life of King Saul that serve to demonstrate the way that he handled sin and the way that perhaps we should not. The first of these is recorded in 1 Samuel 13. The Israelite army is faltering in the face of a formidable Philistine attack. The Philistines have gathered. Their army consists of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as many foot soldiers as there are grains of sand on the shore. Must have been a lot. They are ready for war, and the Israelites are a trembling mess in the face of this formidable attack. Many of them are hiding in caves. Some of them are in cisterns or in thickets. Some of them have deserted and run away. And those that remain are trembling in fear. 
Samuel the priest has instructed Saul to wait seven days for him to come. But Samuel hasn't come yet and Saul is beginning himself to fear. And so he takes it upon himself to do what only the priest was supposed to do by law and he seeks the Lord's favour by sacrificing a burnt offering. It was an unprecedented violation of God's laws. Samuel arrives, takes a look around him and says simply, what have you done? The second incident you'll find just two chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel has given the Lord's instructions to Saul. He has to go and attack Amalek because this group of people had blocked Israel's way after they came up out of Egypt and the Lord was angry with them. And so the instruction was that he was to attack them and nothing was to be left alive. Men, women, children, cows, sheep, donkeys, oxen, everything was to be destroyed. Saul and his men go into battle, they win a decisive victory, but instead of doing as they'd been told, they take the king of Amalek alive as a captive and they keep the best of everything the best cattle, the best sheep, the best donkeys and the best oxen as well as the best property. Only the weak and the worthless things were actually claimed for God and destroyed. Samuel arrives at this point and Saul greets him. May the Lord bless you, he says. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. By this point, Samuel must be thinking, oh really? You have? And his reply to Saul is nothing short of hilarious. He says, but what is this sound of sheep that I hear and the sound of cattle that is in my ears? There is no doubt that Saul was mighty in battle. And yet most of what you will find recorded for us in the Bible about the account of King Saul is not about his great military battles or the state of his army, but it is about his personal battles and the state of his heart. The state of hearts is what matters to God. And I believe that that's why the record of King Saul Great as all of his military achievements were, that is why it is presented in this way. You'll find a summary of all of his military achievements taking up one small paragraph in chapter 14. The rest of it is about his personal issues and the state of his heart. So what can we learn from the way that Saul handled his mistakes? First of all, don't make excuses or try and justify your actions. When you do wrong, claim it and own it. Saul was an expert in excuses. When Samuel arrives and sees that he's made this unauthorised burnt offering, instead of pleading forgiveness, Saul says, I felt pressured into sacrificing the burnt offering. And when he's confronted about the sheep and the cattle, which they were supposed to have destroyed, he says, we spared the best sheep and cattle as a sacrifice. 
to God. And we do the same, don't we? Each of us knows the area that God is working on in our lives, that next thing that he's calling us to. And we have all sorts of reasons for why we can't do it. Too risky. I have a family to consider. I don't think I'm ready. I don't feel fully prepared. What would my friends and family think? And I could go on and on, but I don't need to because we each know the areas of our lives that God is working on and our own particular favourite excuse for why we cannot do it or should not do it. Learn from Saul, don't make excuses. The second thing that Saul was an expert at and that we need not to be experts at is trying to shift the blame. Samuel, he says, you didn't come when you said you would and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. In other words, it's not my fault, Samuel, it's your fault. Or in response to Samuel's probing about the bleating of the sheep and the noise of the cows when God's instruction to him was very clear to wipe them out, Saul effectively says, it wasn't me, it was the army. But as commander-in-chief of the army, it was his job to give them very clear instructions and to ensure that they were carried out. And later on, he changes tack again and he says, I was afraid of the people and I listened to them. It wasn't me, it was the people. We love to shift the blame and it's kind of innate in us from a very young age. In our house, whenever there's a mess on the lounge room floor or the bathroom floor, inevitably it belongs to one of the two youngest. And Bruce and I are waiting for the day. In fact, we've said we'll go out for dinner on this particular day when we say, who did that? And someone goes, it was me. Instead, it's always, she did it or she did it. We're very good at shifting the blame and pointing the fingers at others. The final thing we can learn about repentance from Saul is to be sincere because he certainly wasn't. In 1 Samuel 15 30 Saul says to Samuel I have sinned now please honour me in front of the leaders of my people and in front of all Israel. Doesn't exactly sound very sincere. It sounds to me like the words of a proud man who doesn't want to lose face in front of the people. Possibly it might be the words of a man who's sorry that he's been caught out and perhaps fears what might be the result from being caught out, but I don't think these are the words of a man who is genuinely repentant. Later on in the book of 1 Samuel, we hear repeated accounts of Saul pursuing David and trying to kill him. And on two occasions, he pursues David, but the Lord turns the table and David actually has opportunity to kill Saul, but he does not. And Saul finds out that he was allowed to 
remain alive at the hands of David. And on both occasions, he seeks forgiveness from David. And you can, you can see them up there. Is that you speaking, my servant David? And Saul cried loudly. And he told David, you're more righteous than I. You treated me well while I treated you badly. Turn over a few more pages in your Bible and Saul's pursuing David again. Repentance means changing your ways. And there was no repentance with Saul. He was at it again just a couple of chapters later. And in fact, in chapter 27, verse 1, we're told that David in the end feared for his life and he fled to Gath and only then did Saul Saul stop pursuing him. And like the story of Samson, Saul's story has some very sad words. Among the saddest in the Bible, 1 Samuel 15, 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king of Israel. And 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the Lord's spirit had left Saul. And so finally we come to the writer of the psalm, David, shepherd boy, anointed as king, chosen by God, the most beloved of all the kings of Israel, a man who we're told was after God's own heart, but a man just the same, flawed like all the others were, and even he would bring scandal to the leadership of Israel his headline would have looked something like this. Sex and murder rock the royal house. Many of you know the story well. King David is up one evening on his rooftop strolling around and he spies the lovely Bathsheba taking a bath. Now the husband of the said lovely Bathsheba was out fighting in David's army. <clears throat> and so David asks for her to be brought to him. And one thing leads to another and Bathsheba finds herself pregnant. And David finds himself in a bit of a mess. But he comes up with a cunning plan. If he can have her husband killed in war, then no one need know. And so he sends Uriah, her husband, to the most dangerous part of the battlefield and the inevitable happens, he is killed and David thinks things are working out quite well for him <coughs> until he gets a visit from the prophet Nathan. And just like Samuel did for Saul, Nathan confronts David with his sin. He doesn't come straight out and tell him he's sinned. He, instead, he tells him a nice story about a very rich man who had extensive flocks and a very poor man who just had one little lamb that he'd raised like his own child in his own home. And when the rich man was having a big banquet, he decided that he didn't want to take one of the sheep from his own flock, he'd take the little lamb of the poor man. And this makes David irate and he wants revenge on this rich man. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. You had Uriah the Hittite killed. You took his wife as your wife. And all of a sudden, 
this man of God sees the dirty, big, black stain that is on his heart and he knows what he must do. David would have known about Samson and he had lived through the reign of King Saul and he knew how their stories ended. The spirit of the Lord could not abide with their sin. The spirit had departed from both Samson and Saul because of their failure to keep their own sins in check. One died a blinded prisoner, having begged the Lord to restore his strength just enough to pull a big building down on top of himself and the Philistines. And the corpse of the other hung on the city wall beheaded and stripped of his armour by the Philistines after he fell on his own sword in battle. David loved the Lord and the thought of being cast from his presence or having the Holy Spirit removed from him was more than he could bear and so he pours out his heart to God and pens the beautiful psalm that we're about to read. Let it speak to your soul this morning as I read it through. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
In the Old Testament, as we've said many times throughout this series and as we've seen today, the Holy Spirit was seen to come on people for a time or for a purpose and then could just as easily be removed. And Jesus assures us that with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, all believers will have the Holy Spirit dwell in them forever. Because of the work of Jesus at the cross, God won't withdraw his Holy Spirit from us any longer. But because of our sin, if that sin is left undealt with, we can certainly grieve the Holy Spirit and hinder his work in our lives. Is your dwelling place fit for this most holy tenant or is a clean-up in order? Learn this morning from the mistakes of Samson and Saul and come to God with a repentant heart like David did. Like David, you may still have to wear the consequences of your sin. David's own son with Bathsheba died and his family was beset by infighting and betrayal. You may well have to live with the consequences of your sin, but you don't have to let your sin come between you and your heavenly Father. Make this beautiful prayer of David your own as you seek to be a place where the Holy Spirit can not only dwell, but be fully active. If that is your desire, then stand and sing with us as we sing this beautiful psalm, or part of it. <laughs>